Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Blessed Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, prepare and enable us today to hear your voice in your word that we may understand your truth. We come before you in humility, asking you to engage our minds and open our hearts so that we may realize the foolishness of earthly wisdom and knowing that we are in desperate need of your loving wisdom and grace. And Father, in your word, help us to see that it is your sacrificial love that shows us how we are to love you and one another, the love that is the mystery of your will, the love that you have graciously given to us in your Son at the cross. I ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, if you hadn't seen in the bulletin, um, I talked to Jeff about this. I was actually going to uh, hopefully do this again sometime, maybe after Christmas. Um, So I said to him, I said, well, I'm going to sort of do like a broad series theme here. And that's why it's called Christ, the World's Divine Interruption. Um, And I think Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is a great example of this. Um, And there are plenty more in the Bible, obviously. So the scripture reading for today is Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. So Ephesians 2 is a pretty well-known passage that most Christians, especially within Reformed circles, and it's one of my favorites. Because in a few short verses, Paul first clearly diagnoses our desperate condition, and then he provides the means for fixing this unfortunate circumstance. That said, I also think that it's very easy for us to draw a false understanding of what Paul is really talking about here. So I'll ask you all a question. How does everybody feel today? Are we all doing reasonably well? I feel pretty good myself. And I'm guessing if you made it in here today, you're probably feeling okay as well. And apart from suffering some minor mishap or slight illness from time to time, and the fact that we're all getting a little bit older, life is generally speaking pretty good. Not to mention, we live in a part of the country that most of the rest of the states only dream about, especially the unfortunate folks that live up north during the winter. Believe me, I know, because I'm up up until a couple of years ago, I was one of those and may very well be again. My point is, because we enjoy relatively good health and the benefits of living comfortable lives, it's hard for us to truly identify with Paul is saying to us here in his opening pronouncement. Plus, as good Christians, 
we all immediately fall victim to performing the evangelical scripture translation shell game. What I mean is, is that when we read Ephesians 2.1, we may try to imagine what it means to be dead in our trespasses and sins. But we read these words of declaration and automatically believe that because they are so extreme, they must not really mean what they say. I mean, we read passages like Revelation 13, 1 and 2, and we're assured that the Bible is replete with metaphors. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne of great authority." We read this and we think, well, because Revelation uses all these crazy events to describe how the coming kingdom is going to be finally realized, then clearly what Paul is saying here is supposed to be understood interpretively as well. So we naturally think that when Paul says we're dead, he's just using a literary device, a metaphor in the extreme, so to speak, to get our attention and to get his point across. But there's a problem with this line of thinking. It's wrong. Well, it's not entirely wrong. I will agree, Paul is definitely trying to get our attention, and he's definitely trying to make a very important point. But make no mistake, this is no dragon with seven heads. Paul really does want us to understand that when he says we are dead, he means exactly what he says. We're not simply sick in need of something to cure our disease, and we're not in need of repair of some sort of adjustment to put us back on the right track. No, we're dead and dead people don't do much of anything other than stink the place up eventually. But then we ask ourselves, what's so important about being dead? Why is Paul so vehement and making our deadness so very, very clear to us? Well, for one thing, dead people are incapable of doing anything for themselves. As obvious as this may seem, the point is that our problem is something that a doctor or a mechanic is not able to fix. These people are useless to us. What we need is someone to take care of our dead, lifeless body and soul and create in us new life. We need a savior. There's only one of these, and his name is Jesus. But as much as we understand that we were saved by the blood of Christ alone, unfortunately, this is where too many Christians stop. Now, before you all start claiming there's heresy emanating from the pulpit here at Spruce Creek, let me explain. And this goes directly to the reason why Paul is relentless in making us understand our deadness. You see, as much as our being dead means we need Jesus to save us, the fact that we're dead also pulls the rug right out from under any delusions we might have about our ability to do things for God. We, as good, God-fearing, reformed Christians, happily acknowledge our deadness and sin, and fully grasp the truth that in order to fix this, we need Jesus to save us. But sadly, we too often fail to live our lives within this understanding, especially when we engage non-Christians. Too often our discipleship, if we actually get around to doing any, we seem to want skeptics and non-believers to somehow snap out of their trance and simply recognize the truth that seems so obvious to us, that life is only fully realized in Christ and we expect that this should be completely obvious to them as well. But this ignores what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 2. Remember, we're all dead before God decides to step in and work in us, 
And it's Paul who in Romans 3 quotes from both Psalm 14 and 53 in declaring our sad state. He tells us in in the only way that Paul can, which is to throw it right into our collective faces with no apologies, that no one understands, no one seeks after God, we've all become worthless, no one does good, our throat is an open grave. Sure sounds like dead people to me. So what I want to talk about is that it is precisely because we are dead that we can now understand the magnificence of how God and God alone is the one who creates life. More than that, it is in God's work through his son where he takes the life that he originally created and declared good, a life that we in our infinite stupidity and arrogance destroyed, hence our deadness, and out of this deadness he now creates in us new life. There's one key verse in this passage, but it is, it is the foundation for understanding how the entire biblical story works. And if I might be so bold, I want to suggest that if we don't understand this part, we don't understand any of this book. Everything in the Bible hinges on the first two words of, of verse 4, but God. These two little words seem so simple and ordinary but they are the linchpin for how we must understand anything and everything that is told to us in the Bible. And for that matter, in all creation, everywhere, all the time. So I want to discuss this simple idea in a couple of ways. First, the but God of Ephesians 2.4 is the reference point for how we understand the rest of this passage. But more than that, it is actually a reiteration of a much bigger divine declaration made in Genesis 1. It is a critical point concerning all of creation and thus our eternal relationship with God. And second, rightly understanding these two little words informs why and how we are to live our daily life in relation to God in Christ. So let's begin at the beginning. Genesis 1.1 is not only critical for how the entire, yeah, for how we view the entire Bible, it's critical for how we view ourselves. But Genesis 1-1 also perfectly explains the but God of Ephesians 2-4. Truthfully, I'm really only speaking specifically of the first half of Genesis 1-1. And this is because we don't really need the entire verse to grasp the full significance of what God wants us to get into our thick skulls before we go any further into his word. We all know the words but do we really fully grasp the power of what God is saying in Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God. It's just four simple words, but these four words inform how we view everything in the Bible. They're not so much an introduction into how we are told God made his creation. They are that, of course. But they are more a declaration of ownership and sovereign authority. God is telling us that there was nothing that existed before he made it. But what's most important is that he is the one who decided whether creation is even going to be in the first place. He is the one before all things and the one in control of all things. And he is making it explicitly clear that nothing is without him first deciding that it will be. He is the only creator. And without him, there is no creation. There is no life. This is the awesome power of God on display, and he wants us to know that he is the one single person who controls the making of everything. He alone makes things alive. 
When we wrap our heads around this, it should, still, it should instill in us humility that envelops our lives and guides all of our thoughts and actions. But if we keep reading, we very soon encounter the unfortunate circumstance of Genesis 4 to 6. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What is painfully evident here is that sin has insidiously entered into God's perfect creation. So I have an illustration now, and this should give you uh, an idea of the providence of God. I don't get the newspaper. I don't know anybody that gets the newspaper anymore. But this morning when I got up, I walked out into the driveway, and sitting in the driveway was obviously a free copy of the newspaper. And the headline is sad, because it talks about what I'm sure we're all aware of happened yesterday. And it ties in perfectly with what I was going to talk about because the headline is an attack of such depravity. So, you may remember the shooting last year at the Mandalay Bay Hotel. During all the media craziness and in the continual desperate search for a reason, I heard a reporter asking, how does this happen to us? How can anyone do such a horrible thing? We hear this all the time. For some reason, non-Christians and very often faithful Christians ask the same question. When in the unimaginable horror of sinful man erupts in the most traumatic extremes, it actually becomes reality. We are all caught off guard, and we're amazed that one human being can make a decision to do something so unimaginably evil, and we simply can't reconcile their action in our hearts or our heads. But the problem we have is in the implication of this question. It's the idea that man at his core is essentially good, and that somehow when growing up, some of us morph into some sort of diabolical deviant. So we desperately cling to the idea that if we could just fix this problem, the world would miraculously be transformed into a utopian Shangri-La. But the Bible tells us something entirely different. Psalm 51.5 is very clear. We come into this world in iniquity. We're not born innocent as the world would like us all to believe. No, we're in fact born sinful. And as stated in Jeremiah 17:9, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Now, if this doesn't drive home the absolute hopelessness of our condition, you're simply not paying attention to what God is saying to us. But in Ephesians 2:4, Paul is telling us that this is not the end of the story. On the contrary, it's the announcement of the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul is first making every attempt to drill, drill into our stubborn heads that we were all hopeless and desperate sinners. We all denied our maker and decided to go on our own way without him, living lives devoted entirely to our own selfish desires. But then Paul also reminds us of how we were rescued from our desperate condition, declaring that we have been saved by the blood of Christ. But verses 4 and 5 tell us more than this simple truth. They explain to us that our salvation in Christ has been accomplished entirely by the work of God alone. This is the but God of the entire biblical story. God saved us, not because we wanted to be saved, 
because the harsh reality is that we didn't. We were completely content to wallow in our sin until God decided to pull us out of it. And why did he do this? Verse four tells us, because of his great love for us. But if we look closer at verses six and seven, we are not only given specific detail about what God does when he saves us, we also get some insight as to why he has rescued us from ourselves. The first part is just downright nuts. He's declared us righteous in Christ. And we know this because Paul tells us so. God has raised us up in Christ. He has seated us right there with Christ, on the throne, at the right hand of the Father, in his heavenly kingdom. This is crazy. We're the people who are ultimately responsible for the death of his son. And yet, he puts us right there in the same place as his son in heaven. And if, this is any, and if there is any rational explanation why God has done this for the sons of disobedience and the children of wrath living in the passions of the flesh, we find it in verse 7, and it has zero to do with us. God has demonstrated his miraculous love for us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So the short answer is, he's giving grace in order to show us his grace. (laughs) Makes perfect sense, right? Because if you've been following along at this point, you might surely be asking yourself the question that is likely on the minds of most rational people when they read this. Why on earth would God love anyone who has treated him so badly? This makes absolutely no sense to us. You see, in a world In our world, we don't do much of anything without receiving something in return, even love, especially love. Yeah, I know, you're thinking that love might be the one area where we give ourselves unconditionally, but if we're truly honest, even our deepest affections for one another, even with our spouse, come with expectations. No matter what we think we believe we are freely giving to the other person, we still want something in return. I'm reminded of a scene from your garden variety romance movie. We see a person become so infatuated with another that they take the big risk of uttering those three little words, the words that will, enter, that will either take the relationship to the next level or will completely kill it right there on the spot. Because when we say to someone, I love you, we so desperately want to hear those same words said back to us. And if we don't, there's no place to hide. If the other person doesn't respond with mutual enthusiasm, we have now put ourselves in a completely vulnerable and powerless position. But here in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, this is not what we see. God declares his love for us unconditionally. Why? Because of his infinite grace and mercy. And it's not like he's unaware of of our rebellious attitude. In fact, that is exactly the point. This is precisely why his love for us must come from pure grace. This is the definition of grace. God is offering his son to us, knowing that we may very well turn down the offer. But this doesn't deter him from making the offer. But Paul doesn't just leave it there either. He knows that all these things that he just told us about our sin are still battling for control of our hearts. So he repeats what he just said that it is only by grace that we have been saved. Now, some of you may be thinking that I mentioned the third rail of Reformed theology when I said that God declares his love for us unconditionally. And we as good Calvinists are supposed to not utter this word. 
because we're told it leads to the other grand heresy known as antinomianism. Now, antinomianism is just a big, fancy theological word that means we don't have to follow God's perfect law because we've already been saved by the blood of Christ. See, the problem that everyone gets all worked up about is that while we affirm that God saves us by his grace, we are also well aware that our God is a righteous law-giving God. God has literally handed us commands that we must follow. And these aren't commands that he wants us to try to follow with good intentions. No, we have to keep God's law perfectly, which means that we just can't, he just can't look at our sin and sweep it under the rug. And the bad news for all of us is that this is biblically, theologically, and absolutely true. So if we're talking about satisfying God's wrath because of our sinful rebellion against him, then yes, God's expectation of us as his image-bearing creatures, is 100% conditional. We all have to keep God's law perfectly all the time. That's the requirement that we have to meet to please God and avoid eternal damnation. But here's where the problem lies, and this is what the entire Bible is actually all about. We, as rebellious sinners, are incapable of doing what God requires of us. We can't possibly meet his conditions. Is God's expectation of us conditional? Of course it is. The big problem is we just can't do it. What's worse, we don't even want to. But the, God, the good news is that God has provided to us his son, the one that could and did pay the price for our sin. And what's equally important, he gave to us his perfect righteousness in the process. So that now when God looks at us, all he sees is the perfect work of his son. So does God love us unconditionally? Well, yes and no. Or better said, both. The beauty, genius, and quite honestly, the nonsensical message of the gospel is that the God who demands that we keep his law is also the God who keeps his law perfectly for us. We see this exact declaration in the covenant promise that God made in Abraham in Genesis 15, 17 to 18. Passes that Carl just read. When the sun had gone down on, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, we don't have time to go into the particular historical and cultural significance of what's happening here. But in short, what is demonstrated in this passage is that God uses Israel's bloody sacrificial system as an example for how he is the one to satisfy his own wrath. God is the smoking pot that passes through the bloody corpses of the dead animals, and this is representative of satisfying his covenantal requirements. He then promises Abram that he is giving to Abram's offspring the coming kingdom. This is both conditional and unconditional by God. God has provided himself as the sacrifice for our sins. And God's promises are true and cannot be broken. So all this is to say that God's infinite grace is the outworking of his covenant promise through Abraham. And so when Paul tells us that we have been saved by grace, he's reminding us of God's covenant promise made to Abram in Genesis. That same promise he reiterates in Jeremiah 31, 33, when he declares and he explains the new covenant, saying that he will be our God and we will be his people. But Paul here in verse 8 adds a further declaration. 
This grace that God freely gives comes only to us by faith. And because Paul is so keenly aware of our desperate need to cling to something of our own, not unlike the, other, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, he makes it quite clear that even our faith has been gifted to us by God. And he does, not, and he does this for the express purpose of keeping us from taking any credit for anything concerning our salvation in Christ. So let's consider a real-world example of how this might be reflected in our own lives. How many times have you spent, uh, been put in a position to help someone who you actually care for? And what do you first do? You weigh the impact on yourself. It's like we're performing some sort of cost-benefit analysis before deciding to help someone. We ask ourselves, well, whatever I do for this per person inconvenience me? Will it take time out of my busy schedule? Or worse, will I have to dig into my hard-earned money, giving it to someone who should probably be more diligent in finding a job on their own? And of course, there is always the, the requirement that whoever is the potential recipient of our graciousness, this person must be appreciative. We simply must have our recognition in exchange for our good deeds. But maybe we should be asking ourselves a different question. Maybe we should be asking ourselves, how do we define grace? More importantly, maybe we should be asking ourselves, how does God define grace? If grace is a reciprocal response, then grace is not grace. And most importantly, as Paul states in Galatians 2.22, then Christ died for no reason. And Paul makes the same point in Romans 11.6. But if by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This sounds eerily similar to the argument I just made concerning conditionality of God's love for us. You see, we want to define grace as some sort of quid pro quo. I'll do for you if you return the favor. But this is not grace, it's works righteousness. If we're expecting anything in return for our good works, this expectation totally destroys the goodness of those works in God's eyes. Because now we are no longer doing these good works out of love for one another, but in order to get something in return. Even if it's just a simple thank you, we simply have to have our recognition. The point is, it's not that whoever is receiving our good works shouldn't be thankful, they probably should, but this should never be the criteria or motivation for why we love one another. So when Paul tells us we were all dead in sin, he is quite thorough in giving us all the dirty little details about how sin has infiltrated every little nook and cranny of our lives. We might argue that in verse 2, Paul is being a bit melodramatic, but again, he's trying to get us to understand the severity of our sinful condition. We were following Satan and living in all manner of passions of the flesh. Basically, we were horrible, cheating, lying, murdering, sexually deviant people in both our mind and body, which means we weren't just thinking evil thoughts, we were doing them as well. And if that's not bad enough, we were all completely happy and content to be living this way. But Paul isn't quite finished. At the end of verse two, he closes his convicting declaration with a few words that may appear to be just a basic wrap-up of his condemnation by saying, like the rest of mankind. But these few words carry with them something that we as Christians too often fail to remember. But understanding like the rest of mankind is as important as understanding the implications of but God. We were and are no different than all those other horrible sinners out there. 
And it wasn't until God stepped in and decided to save us from ourselves through his son that our hearts were changed. And this is precisely why the but God of verse 4 is so important. It attacks our broken and blind sensibilities. Paul wants us to get it, that it is God alone who changes us. We don't do anything. Remember, even our faith is a gift from him. All we do is receive it. But most importantly, the reason Paul's words are so critical to rightly understand is that if we don't understand this truth, then we actually begin to believe that we had something to do with rescuing ourselves. And now we subconsciously begin to think that this is what is needed for non-believers to become believers. But this is the birth of self-righteousness, and self-righteousness is the roadblock to discipleship. And for that matter, it's the exact opposite of the gospel because it places us above others. And this is antithetical to a cross-centered life. At the foot of the cross is where our discipleship begins. When we finally understand that the God who created everything out of nothing, the same God who created us, the same God we defied and turned our back on, this same God decides to sacrifice the life of his only son to give us new life, When that truly resonates in us and takes hold of our heart, now we might just be prepared to do what Christ commanded in Matthew 28. Now we can proclaim the good news of Christ crucified to all unbelievers in humility and love, even to those who think we're fools, even to those who hate us. You pray with me. Father in heaven, Help us to understand the truth that your love is unconditional because we had the opportunity to follow your law in the garden, Father, and we chose to be smarter than you. We chose to follow our own path. And even though we denied you, you still come after us. You still chase us down and say, no, I'm going to save you anyway. Amen.